Hi everyone, uh, I'm Andrew, and uh, this morning's reading from Luke 16, 19 to 31. Please forgive the New Zealand accent. <laughs> Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But he is now comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from us from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will also not come to this place of torment. Abram replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, as per usual, uh, helpful to have your Bible's open to Luke chapter 16, uh, and uh, we're going to spend our time this morning unpacking that particular little passage. But I want to ask you this morning, do you want to be blessed? Oh, come on. Do you want to be blessed? Yeah, now before you think I've uh, joined the ranks of prosperity gospel preachers, Jesus is going to answer that question for you this morning. He's going to tell you how you can be blessed. But let me warn you up front, as is quite usual to Jesus, it's probably not what you might think. We're going to be continuing our series in Luke's Gospel, and we've come to uh, one of Jesus's uh, stories, Lazarus and the Rich Man, and we're going to unpack it under four headings. So there they are. Check your bearings. Let me tell you a story. You have been warned, and... God help us. So let's jump in. Check your bearings. Now, I've been reminding you for the last five Sundays that context is king. I told you the story last week. I'm going to tell it again in case you missed it because it's horrific enough. Uh, we had people at my last church who introduced themselves to me. Uh, she came up and said, uh, hi, my name is, I'm not going to tell you, uh, I give drugs to children and my, my husband cuts them up. Uh, and you're kind of like, what? <laughs> She's a pharmacist and he's a doctor, a paediatric surgeon. So it's quite normal for him to say that and her to say that. There was a big smile on the face. The context tells you. I didn't have, uh, you know, multi-murderers multi in my congregation. I had a pharmacist and a surgeon. Uh, they were the two. The context is key. 
And as we come to Lazarus and the rich man this morning, we actually are going to see that it is part of a tapestry of teaching that stretches back from Luke 15 through to halfway through chapter 17. It's one block that is designed to answer the question raised by the Pharisees and the religious leaders grumbling. If you go back to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, you'll see there that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are grumbling because the sinners and the tax collectors are coming to Jesus and he's welcoming them. And not only does he welcome them, he eats with them. And so Jesus crafts this uh, extended uh, block of teaching to really address the grumbling that had been brought up by the religious leaders of the day. You see, they had redefined what it meant to be one of God's people. They had reframed the relationship and reduced it to rules. Now, we know on a human level that never works, does it? So, husbands, do we have a checklist that makes us uh, a good husband for our wives? So we come in and we say, I'm a wonderful husband, look, I can tick all the boxes. I don't think the wives amongst us would be thinking that was a credible activity. Yes? A few nods. Yeah, okay, good. We don't do relationships by rules. And the Pharisees had reduced their relationship with God to a series of rules. And they felt that if they could tick the boxes, everything was okay. And so Jesus critiques them in chapter 16, verse 15. And he says, you are the ones who justify yourselves. You declare yourselves to be right in the eyes of others. You're the ones who are ticking all the boxes and saying, look at us. We are models of religious performance. God knows your hearts, Jesus says. What people value highly is detestable. In God's sight. Jesus is critiquing the religion of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He is telling them that it is an abomination before God. Joyless, loveless, heartless, condescending and cold. It's the kind of religion that turns people away rather than draws them in. And Jesus models what it is meant to be like. And you see that as the tax collectors and the sinners are drawn to him. He teaches that following God has grace at its heart. It's not that we should think that grace is only a New Testament idea. Grace was there from the beginning. So go back into the book of Deuteronomy, and if you don't know much about Deuteronomy, it's a sermon or three sermons that Moses gave on the edge of the promised land just before Israel crossed over the Jordan to go and take possession of what God had promised them. They'd been wandering around the desert for 40 years. God had rescued them out of Egypt. Okay, And what's he say this? He says in Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you 
and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors, that he brought you out of uh, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God's love is what saved Israel, not their righteousness. Grace is there from the beginning. And that is what Jesus teaches our relationship with God must look like. It's not a series of rules that we can tick the boxes. It is a response to his grace to us ultimately in Christ. It's a, a deep thankfulness. We, you know, we sing it. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Jesus teaches us and Christians throughout the centuries have recognized that the life we are called to live with God is one that is framed by grace and that grace overflows. And so Luke chapter 15, we see that God's grace to us, his spiritual blessing of us is meant to overflow that we are concerned that the lost are found. In chapter 16, we see that it's not just the spiritual blessings, it's the material blessings, that they are also to overflow. And now Jesus draws his critique to the climax. He tells a story. Now, this is not called a parable, uh, but it has many of the features of parables, and I think it's safe to say it is a parable. It just isn't introduced as... Jesus told a parable. It's a story with a point. And like all parables, we should avoid pushing the details too hard. They make a point and the other points around them are somewhat peripheral. Let me give you an example. There's a great story about a king that has a feast and he invites a whole lot of people in. You familiar with this one? Okay, and they refuse to come. And while the meal is on the table, come to the banquet, the king musters an army, conducts a military campaign, destroys a city, and then comes back and enjoys the uh, the meal with others. Okay? Um, we're not meant to push the details for a strictly literalistic interpretation. And here, let me just warn you, because people like doing it with this one, This is not intended to teach us about the geography of heaven and hell. Okay? There's a point that Jesus is making, and we should focus in on that rather than getting hung up on what's the chasm that he's talking about? How come Lazarus could see Abraham or or could see the rich man and vice versa? No, he's making a point. It's a story that he is telling to make that point. And it's a story of two men. One is rich and one is poor. And the rich man is really, really rich. We don't get it because we can go down to Marion after here and go and buy ourselves a purple shirt if we chose to. But the purple dye that was made for purple clothes was extraordinarily expensive. They ground it out of the shell of a special uh, shellfish. Uh, and so you had to uh, be extraordinarily wealthy to wear purple anything. That's why it's a colour of royalty. This man wore purple clothes, and not only that, his undies, 
Because that's what the word literally means. His underwear was fine linen. This guy has got the best outer clothes and he's so wealthy that his undies are made out of fine linen. (coughs) And he parties every day. He has feasts, he celebrates every day. The word used to describe the gate at which the beggar is laid is the same word that describes, not like the gate to my front house, if you've ever been there, um, it's the gate to a palace or the gate to a temple. It's, it's, it's a huge word. This man is really rich. And the poor man is really poor. So in verses 20 and 21, we read that he is laid. He doesn't get up and walk. He is laid by others at the gate of the rich man. The rich guy was probably one of the few people maybe with the resources who could help. And so his friends or his family had brought him each and every day and laid him in the pathway at the gate of the rich man. He's desperately hungry. He wants the scraps that fall from the man's table and quite a revolting idea. The unclean, despised animals, the dogs, come and lick his wounds. Great contrast, great wealth and privilege, great poverty and loss. Two men with two destinations. You see, death is universal and it comes for them both, but the ultimate destinations are not. So the rich man dies and the angels come and usher him into, if you've got an older translation, into Abraham's bosom, into his embrace. That's the idea that Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish faith, for a Jew, there was no one higher than Abraham. Moses was up there, but Abraham was it. The angels usher him in as a guest of honour for, uh, for eternity. It's an image here of a 100% blessing. For a Jew, it doesn't get much better than this. Okay? It's like... You know, I won't use the crows at the moment because maybe you wouldn't see this as this. Maybe you're a port supporter. There's one or two of them here, you know, and and the greatest coach and the greatest captain, they come and they pick you up in their car. It's blazoned with the teal and black and white and the logos and they dress you in all the club gear. They give you the premiership flag for that. The, the, how many are they? One, two? Is that right? You know something? No? What? No? None? <laughs> whatever. Anyway, whatever. And they usher you into the club rooms and there you are. It doesn't get better than that for you. The rest of us might look at it and go, yeah, okay, whatever. But um, for a Jew, this was the best. There he is, Lazarus with Abraham in eternity. The rich man dies and he's buried. Notice that we get the comment that he's buried implying that maybe the poor man didn't even get a burial. He's assigned a place in Hades, which is literally just the place of the dead, where he is in torment. Great blessing, great curse. Two men, two destinations, and then we have two requests. uh, The rich man looks up, And he sees 
Lazarus with Abraham at a distance. And he says this, he says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. It's interesting, the rich man still thinks that Lazarus maybe should be serving him. Okay? It's not one of the angels that needs to dip his finger, it's Lazarus. But the other thing that's astounding is the rich man knows Lazarus' name. Rich man knows who this man is, he recognises him, and he requests that he serves him. But Abraham gives an answer. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Abraham is saying, the choices that you make in the here and the now are binding in eternity. There are no second chances. This is the way it's going to stay. And so the rich man, he works out, actually, okay, there's no second chances for me, but there might be for my five brothers. So he says in verses 27 and 28, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus again. Notice the condescension. To my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham answers. I've put the wrong one there. You've got your Bibles, hopefully, because it's not there. They have Moses and the prophets. They've got their Bibles. Now, it's interesting to note that Abraham speaks to one who knows Moses and the prophets. It's not right to see this rich man and his five brothers as the godless pagans. I think it's fair to say they would have been in the synagogue where Moses and the prophets would have been read Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. These people were religious. These people were regarded as blessed. But here we see the opposite. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. But then the rich man, he disagrees. No, no, you got it wrong, Abraham. But if someone came back from the dead, then they would repent. No, if they won't listen to scripture, someone rising from the dead will not make a difference. We see here an echo of what is coming, don't we? Of the Lord Jesus himself. So we need to actually ask ourselves though at this point, why is the rich man condemned? Because it looks like when you look back into verse 25, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. So it's a karma kind of thing. It's kind of balancing up. He got rubbish in this life. He gets good in eternity. Uh, you had good in this life. You get rubbish in eternity. Can I say, that's not the issue. The, good, the rich man's not sent to hell for being rich. He's sent there for worshipping the wrong God. <laughs> 
Jesus has taught people. He's taught just a few verses earlier. You cannot serve both God and money. And even though the rich man would have been seen as someone who was morally upright and religiously ticking all the boxes, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, Jesus is saying the fact that he walked past that poor man day after day after day, his total disregard for Lazarus, showed that his heart was serving money and not God. I said parables have one main point. What's the point? It is those who respond to God's blessing of them by blessing others who show that they are the ones who will be blessed in eternity. It's not salvation by works. If you bless people now, God will bless you then. It's if you are the kind of person that God is going to bless in the future because you've received his grace, that will be seen in the here and the now. Does that make sense? It's not that we earn eternity and blessing in eternity by blessing others now. It's because we've freely received that by grace and that is seen in how our lives overflow to bless others in the here and the now. And so, let's move to our third point. You have been warned. It's a bit of a stark sermon, this one, isn't it? You have been warned. Because we are like the rich man's brothers. We have choice. Our choices now can make a distance. We are not in Hades with the rich man where the die is cast. We can make choices now that make a difference in eternity. We have Moses and the prophets. And more than that, we have the teaching of Jesus, as well as Jesus himself rising from the dead. Will we listen? Will we see God's heart? Will that transform the way that we see others around us? Or are we like the Pharisees who seek to justify ourselves before others? We tick the box, but when we leave here on Sunday, when we leave Bible study, when we've finished with our religious things, we walk past Lazarus each and every day. Because God has testified throughout the Old Testament and the New that he has a heart for the poor. So let's go back to Deuteronomy. I just picked one verse of many. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Charity was built into Israel's law. You might know the story of Ruth the Moabitess who comes into Boaz's field and she reaps the edges because the Israelite harvesters were not to harvest to the edge. They were not to go over and make sure they got everything because they were leaving things for the poor in the community. Generosity was built into the law because it is by grace they have been saved. The Psalms call us to it. Psalm 82 
defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. The prophets critique it. Amos, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and they deny justice to the oppressed. We are like the rich man's brothers. We have the testimony of scripture. Will we listen? We also need to remember that we are accountable. We are stewards, and this is what chapter 16 has been teaching us. We are stewards of material blessings and spiritual blessings, and they were not meant to end with us. Like Jane and Matt in the kids' talk. You know, Matt just loads his pockets. All the kids miss out. God has blessed us that we might bless others. And he has blessed us. And in chapter nineteen, uh, chapter um, 16, verse 9, Jesus tells us to use our worldly wealth to gain friends for ourselves, to bless others so that they will be rejoicing when we are with them in eternity. They will be testifying to the fact that God's grace overflowed from us to them. That's what he's calling us to. Now I want to introduce you to a man by the name of William Law. Has anyone come across William Law before? He's probably not widely read. He was an Anglican guy back in the 1600s. He wrote a book, really sexy title, called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. Okay? Uh, not a bestseller. It should be read. Let me read to you some of what he teaches on using money. Another great reason, he writes, for devoting all our fortune to the right use is this. It is capable of being used to the most excellent purposes and is a great means of doing good. So if we waste it, we do not waste a trifle that signifies little, but we waste that which might be made as eyes to the blind, as a husband to the widow, as a father to the orphan. So if we part with our money in foolish ways, we part with great power of comforting our fellow creatures and of making ourselves forever blessed. If you had eyes, hands and feet that you could either give to those who needed them, but you either locked them up in a chest or pleased yourself with some needless or ridiculous use of them, instead of giving them to your brethren who were blind or lame, could you not justly be reckoned an inhuman wretch? You love that language. Or if you chose to amuse yourself with furnishing your house with them, rather than giving, uh, rather than entitling yourselves to an eternal reward by giving them to those who needed eyes or hands, could you not be justly reckoned mad? For after we have satisfied our own sober and reasonable needs, all the rest of our money is but like spare eyes or hands. It is something that we cannot keep to ourselves without being foolish in the use of it. Something that can only be used well by the giving of it to those that need it. It's quite a hard thing to listen to, isn't it? But law is saying, I think, what Jesus is saying. We have been blessed that 
that blessing might overflow to others. Let me give you a slightly more positive quote from him. If there is nothing so glorious as doing good, and there is nothing that makes us so like God, then nothing can be so glorious in the use of our monies as to use it in all in works of love and goodness. If you want to be like God, if you want to be blessing others, how we use our money matters. Let me just quickly touch on a few other points. We are accountable. We are like the rich man's brothers. Remember, though, the blinding power of greed. The rich man in his culture would have been seen as being blessed by God, and he was. But he saw that as an end to himself. The means of blessing others has been given into our hands as it was to his. But we are designed to be like pipes. It's meant to go through us, provide for our needs, and then go to others. But we always tend to look at ourselves and think, when I have more. And so I can remember talking to a man a couple of churches ago, and he came up to me and he said, Cameron, uh, you won't see me at church very much over the next little while. I'm working at getting my business established. Okay, but after that, uh, after we're up and running, if you, ever you need something, just ask and I'll write you a check. Think, oh, sounds good. No. Did he ever come? No. Did we ever see any blessing flow through that man to others? No. He said, I'll, when I've got enough, then I will bless others. We tend to look at ourselves and say we don't have enough. We, we don't compare with the Porsche. We compare, or we don't compare with the push bike. We compare with the Porsche. Ah, oh, but I only drive a Hyundai. Okay, and maybe if you've got a Porsche, you go, you go up to the Aston Martin. I only drive a Porsche 911, you know. If only, when I have an Aston Martin, then I'll be able to. We compare up. I did some research during the week. We have the 14th highest per family or per household income in the world, Australia. Okay, we are number 14. Out of all the nations of the world, uh, 14th. And our median household income is $55,000 a year. Now, I know enough about Brighton. I'm not talking about your personal finances. I don't know those. But I guess most of us, as households, we're not on $55,000 a year. We are extraordinarily blessed. Remember that we look at ourselves so often and we compare ourselves with those who have more. And we say, when I have even what tenth of what they have, then I will bless. No, God has blessed us now. Jesus also warns us about the blinding power of need. Lazarus was walked past every single day. If you walk through the city, you walk past the homeless every single day. You turn on the TV, you get bombarded with need. And after a while, we just switch off, don't we? Jesus actually warns us. He says, the poor we will always have with us. And to cope, we can just switch off. But Jesus doesn't leave us that option. I want to just bring before you this fact. 
Jesus doesn't critique the rich man for not solving world poverty. Jesus critiques the rich man for not having compassion on the single man at his gate. Remember, our actions will have eternal consequences. As uh, I think it was said in Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. Okay, it's true. God has given us great power to bless others. How we use our money and how we use our other resources, our time, our experience, our education, our focus, it shows where our heart is and ultimately reveals where our destiny will be. So you may then, God help us. Yes. And he will. He will. Ask him. Ask him for a vision of his grace. Ask him that you might know more of his love. So that then would overflow in your life. When Paul is talking to the, the Corinthian churches about the offertory that he's taking up for the churches in uh, Jerusalem, the poor in Jerusalem, he takes them back to the riches of Christ. He says this, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul here isn't talking about bank accounts, but he's talking about what he picks up in Ephesians 1 when he says you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It's what Paul marvels at in 1 John 3 verse 1 when he says, Behold, wow, what manner of love is this that we should be called children of God. Though he was rich, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. Ask God that you might see just how much you have been blessed with spiritually and materially. Ask him also to bring you to repentance. Remember that we are stewards and I look at my own life and I see that on many occasions I've been an unrighteous steward. I share this not to big note myself and Matt, uh, but just to bring you into the picture. You'll know, many of you, that we both took pay cuts start of this COVID time. But one of the things God's been teaching me is that actually I haven't missed that 10% that disappeared out of my bank account. Okay. So it's a conversation Karen and I have started to have about what we're going to do with the 10% when it comes back. Okay. Wow. Unrighteous stewards. Will we furnish our houses, to use William Law's words, with things that could be a blessing to others? Ask him to grant us repentance, that we might overflow. Help him, ask him to help us to act practically. Now, I haven't made a note of this until now. This parable is unique in all of Jesus' parables. Why? Lazarus is the only man in any of Jesus' parables that has a name. He's the only one. 
Okay? Do you know what Lazarus means? The, the name Lazarus means one whom God helps. Is it coincidence that Jesus names this man lying at the rich man's gate as one whom God helps? Could perhaps his point be that the rich man was meant to be the agent of that help coming, but he turned off the tap. He wasn't interested. And as we listen to this, we've got to ask ourselves, who is our Lazarus? Who is the one through whom, through us, we might help? Through God, God might help through us. Who is the poor man lying on your doorstep? Sure, it's not someone with sores and dogs and starving. Maybe it's, maybe it's the person who is just so lonely. Maybe it's the person who just needs your compassionate ear. Maybe it's the person who just needs a little bit of your time. Maybe a little bit of your influence. I moved here with my family 13 years ago. One of the things you note when you move, and we just moved from New South Wales, when you move into a new community, you are poor in relationships. And one of the things I noticed, because Adelaide isn't as transient as Sydney, is that there were lots of people out there who were really rich in relationships. They had old school friends, they had brothers and sisters and mothers and aunties and uncles and all those people. Let me throw to you if you are that kind of person. We have brothers and sisters here who are poor because their families are in interstate, overseas. It's not just material poverty. That is real. And we should act. But I think sometimes we walk around wrapped up in our needs so much that we miss what is in front of us. So maybe this week, ask God to open your eyes to the Lazarus in your life. Could be your neighbour. Could be your workmate. Could be that person sitting next to you on the train or the bus. Could be anyone. Who is it that God is calling you to bless with the riches that he has blessed you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have warned us. In teaching us about the hardness of heart shown by the Pharisees, Lord, you reveal that perhaps we have more in common with them than we would like. Lord, amaze us with your grace. Show us your mercy. Grant us repentance. Show us where we have hoarded riches to ourselves in these last days. Lord, open our eyes to see the Lazaruses in our life, the one that you seek to help, but you have put the means of helping in our hands. Lord, 
So motivate us by your grace that we might overflow with the abundance that you have given us. And so we might, as Jesus said, win friends for ourselves who will welcome us into eternal dwellings. Lord, we ask this for your glory and in response to your grace. Amen.